0: So I think there's a lot of ways you can apply the technology but when I think about from a teaching perspective, um, if I put two or three or four hays on the table and if you took hay judging maybe in 4H or FFA or you, you kind of intuitively know, okay, I'm going to sort them based on stimminess and color and, and uh, leaf shatter, um, those kind of things. When I take an NIR wand and I scan across there and spot sample, I should make the same decisions. And what's really cool is that it, that actually does work.
1: A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. AB Vista, feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize room and function. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Adiseo USA. Producers of SmartamimeM and MilkPay.com. Bergen Schmidt. Your partner for improving animal performance. Diamond V. Because animal health deserves a healthier approach. Welcome to the Dairy Podcast Show. A weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global dairy industry. AB Vista helps dairy producers maximize their herd potential with feed intelligence and targeted ingredients to optimize rumen function and overall animal health from young calves to lactating dairy cows. AB Vista is here to combine industry leading products and optimal feed strategies to increase your ROI.
2: All right. Welcome everybody to this episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. I am joined today by Dr. Benjamin Wenner from The Ohio State University, where he serves as an associate professor in animal sciences. Uh, Dr. Wenner attended Michigan State University for his bachelor's degree, where we overlapped um, for the entire four years. So unfortunately for both of us, maybe a little bit. Uh, He completed his master's in animal science at The Ohio State University and received his Ph.D. in nutrition um, from the OSU Interdisciplinary PhD program. So Benjamin's actually been a guest on our podcast before, but we're really excited to welcome him back today. Um, and we were we were discussing before we started recording the topic of conversation today is NIR technology, um, how we use it in the classroom, how we might be able to use it in extension. Um, and I'm excited to talk about this topic as I was explaining. To Benjamin before I hit the record button. Um, I recently purchased a piece of NIR equipment and I'm a little afraid to open it because it was very expensive and I'm afraid I'm going to mess it up. So (laughs) uh, I'm excited to hear, Benjamin, what you've been working on uh, and and what your plans are and, and how I can be a little less afraid of my fancy new piece of equipment.
0: So you got to start by dropping it. And once okay. you drop it, won't. Is... do you remember when you got like your first nice camera and then like those digital cameras and then you drop it the first time you're like, Oh my gosh, I've ruined it. Oh, with that's actually a stuff. really
2: sore subject with me. Um,
0: <laughs> <'cause> <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> I, I, uh, that was something that happened to me relatively recently with somebody else's camera. Um, <laughs> and it's shattered. And you
0: actually broke it? Um, yeah, oh, it I did no. break it.
2: So I don't, I shouldn't be dropping things. I'm too much of a klutz,
0: but <laughs> That's a that's a bad analogy then.
1: <laughs> I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> so uh, I've had the I got one of the older generation. I mean, not old gener. We were just talking about the old tractor attachments, but I've got one of the older generation. I think it came out in 2018, 2019 when I was uh, you know traveling for nutrition. So 2017, 2018 feels like yesterday. And um, I remember at the time going to the demos, and they talked about price, and those prices are in the five figures. And so when I got one sent to me, um, AB Vista was kind enough to send me one that um, they had been using for demos at different universities, and it was older, right? So they, they can share it around it and let you practice. And so I remember they said it to me, and I had the suitcase. Uh, it's in the back corner under the deer hide, but
2: which nobody can see, by the way, because they're either listening to this as a podcast or they have the, the fancy background on. But
0: oh, that's fair, yeah. So, but um, but I remember like you know all those fancy movies where you're gonna go make the the high dollar CIA trade, and you've got the briefcase uh, <laughs> like handcuffed to your arm. <laughs> And I joked with my students. I said, you know, I th- I feel like I need to chain this to my arm because I'm worried one of you will wander off with it and I have to return it eventually because it's not mine. Um, and I was not so much afraid to break it as I was afraid to lose it. Um, and I'm still afraid a little bit to break it. Uh, more than anything, I think, as that technology ages, um, that one in particular, you know, the software gets to lag a little bit. So, the advantage to getting a new one, like you said, you got one straight out of the box, your software will be a lot faster, right? Like yours is probably Bluetooth enabled. Yep, yep. And mine runs to a tablet. So, I'd have to like boot the tablet. I have to connect the tablet to Wi-Fi. Um, all those same advances that we had as our phones matured and our computers matured, you're having now with NIR technology. So, that's a that's a big advantage, I think, moving forward. It's not so much the, the light that reads or, or those little pieces. I, I'm sure those are important too. But being able to um, put that straight onto a computer or build that into a data set or balance that against maybe a, a more real-time cloud download versus you know mine, mine only is updating when I manually go and update my calibrations. Um, those are pretty big advantages.
2: The one that I'm replacing was one of those, like you said, a tractor attachment one. It's been sitting in the back corner of our lab for no one really, not a while. It belonged to the guy who was here before me. Um, and you, the manual, you have to type in, like connect to a browser and then you have to type in like a specific URL to be able to access and, and actually hard plug in the the equipment to the, or the the NIR to the computer. And uh, we have to be careful if we update that computer and all that, all the little song and dance that you have to do. Um, and then we also found out, as I was mentioning to you beforehand, we don't, we had to replace it because we couldn't find the calibration pucks for it anymore. And the black and white calibration pucks had to be the ones that were originally purchased with the machine. So um, yeah, I think we've, when I started kind of digging around and, and shopping around a little bit, it was kind of amazing what, what advancements have been made and it's 2023. Yeah. Um, There's a lot more cool stuff that we can do with some of this stuff.
0: Talking with the different labs, I think there's advancements on the NIR and what I can test for too. Um, And I've seen, you know, labs can generate for you accuracy, you know, CVs and and whatnot. Um, As a scientist, I should tell you that that's really important, right? I'm sure that's really important. But as a teacher, it's not that important because when I sit down with my students in introductory nutrition and I say, oh, let's NIR1 this A right here in class and it tests as a 47 NDF and I'm like, well, I'm pretty sure if I set that off, it's actually a 43. Nobody cares, right? The, the students don't care. It's, it's the fact that when they want it, they get an immediate feedback of a number that matches a nutrient that you're trying to reinforce. And so, I can't really tell you that I've gone through and checked how exactly does it match? I have checked dry matters, right? But we've been able to NIR dry matter for a long time. So it makes sense that the, the dry matters were really reliable. But for me, when I'm teaching or I'm doing extension, it's a lot more about just showing people differences, big differences. And um, so I think there's a lot of ways you can apply the technology. But when I think about from a teaching perspective, um, if I put two or three or four haze on the table, And if you took hay judging maybe in 4-H or FFA or you you kind of intuitively know, okay, I'm going to sort them based on stimminess and color and and, uh, leaf shatter, um, those kind of things. When I take an NIR wand and I scan across there and spot sample, I should make the same decisions. And what's really cool is that that actually does work. Um, And I took it to a 4-H conference presentation. That's probably the last place I've used it in April. Um, And that's the first place I had adults. So, I had adults who... Who sell hay and run hay tests before they sell lots of hay, and when the adults get up there and they're like, "Oh, wow, that's really that's really pretty cool." Can I send you sample? You know, can I send you samples in the mail to do that? Like, well, I mean, if you're gonna already send samples in the mail, maybe you want a benchtop FOSS or something, you know, something like that. Um, but um, when you get out on the road and you can congregate a whole bunch of samples in one place and talk to people, that's a really cool extension experience because. Um. They, so many people, I think, don't even sample feedstuffs or haze is a big push for me right now, because they don't know they don't know how to take a sample. They assume that it's going to be really expensive and complicated and frustrating, and they won't know what to do with the data afterwards. But you can have the entire conversation at once. I can show you how to take the sample. I can show you how a bad sample will skew your results. I can run the samples and show you how to select across forages and then provide feedback of how you apply those different forages to a species all within an hour. Right. All those things that could stretch out over time, or they're kind of esoteric because I'm pulling data sheets that don't really relate to, I've made them up. They're fake. Um, I can actually run real data right there. That was really cool.
2: So what does that look like for you? Is that the same in class versus when you're using it with your 4-H stuff? Or, or do you have students or foragers or adults bring samples to uh to your event or how exactly, what's the logistics of that look like?
0: So I'll tell you funny stories and then we can talk about better logistics. So like, the first time I did it, I traditionally teach students about dry matter and we microwave stuff in the in the classroom, which is really fun because if you microwave samples just right, you can get them to catch on fire and that's really dramatic. And then there's smoke in the classroom and um, everybody kind of stress, stresses out.
2: And there, I'm assuming your environmental health and safety for campus is not listening to this,
0: but... Well, that's the thing. So, over time, you have this realization, you're like, there's things I'm doing in classroom that are cool that I shouldn't be doing. And so, then it's like, well, how do I revise my lectures to teach other principles without maybe being quite so disruptive? Um, so, now what I do is I bring in for that classroom, that was the first thing I did. I brought in Hays of my own. I sampled them different places. I'm actually working on a hay kit. So, like, the same kit could be sent to different counties and everybody could have the same analysis. Um, And we would use the wand probably to determine those um, just so that it would match if we had an event later. Um, But so I've got different hay samples and I would just bring them in and then talk students through um, with a kind of an overhead camera, some visual evaluation, and then we'll take volunteers to come up and actually read. And once I think kids need to see the other, other students can do that analysis right there. That it's, you didn't, your professor up front is not just some rock star genius that can pull it all up on a tablet, right? If you know me, then you know that that's not true. So instead they need to see that their peers can completely blindly walk up that day learn a new piece of equipment and know how to run a sample in five minutes. And that's, I think that's kind of that first breakthrough moment. Then um, then we did some other things. So, then we did have an extension event and I did have people bring in their own haze. That was pretty much worthless from a take it home and apply it tomorrow because when they brought their own haze in, everybody had followed probably the worst hay sampling routines known to man, right? Like grab from the bale while the bale's still connected, just whatever you can rip out of it or grab this... They'd take the flake on the end or they'd rip the flake in half and bring that.
2: Anybody bring whole bales to you?
0: Nobody, (laughs) right? Nobody brought anything bigger than a grocery sack. Nobody even brought a whole flake, Um, which led to some really nice conversations about hay sampling. And we had some really nice conversations about their hay, but we had to kind of give them the caveat that if you're grabbing just half a flake or something and I give you a protein number, it's probably plus or minus two or three percent. Right, and it, it just probably is because your hay bale is going to vary a lot. And I don't know if anybody has data on how much hay varies flake to flake. That would be fun.
2: Well, we have NIR. We can do it.
0: <laughs> yeah, we can, right? So, that's what you need. You need to take bales, break them apart, scan them flake by flake. And I think that would be a really cool educational thing in the classroom that I haven't done yet.
2: Did we just come up with our next undergraduate research project?
0: I'll do it if you will. All right. Better, better start it before we put it on the internet. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but then I had kind of like a colossal fail weekend that turned out to be a really... So, I had a great idea and the great idea turned out to be a really bad idea that turned out really nicely. So, I don't know if I told you at ADSA, but um, we decided to make our own silage and cla- Uh
2: No, I don't think you told me this.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, I was this is going to be awesome, right? So, I, I found these homemade uh, mini silos. We I... And of course, that was a whole ordeal ordering and Lowe's lost my PVC pipe and everything else. So, we ended up doing them in Ziploc bags while I waited for PVC to show up that it's been nine months and it has never shown up. So, I go to make the silage and I need some sort of a wet forage, right? And I, in my all of my wisdom, decided that I was going to let my back lawn grow up as tall as I could. So, then I was going to go and bag it in the bagger and then bring it into campus because if I bag grass, it should be about 30% dry matter, right? Be about perfect. Yeah. So I let it all grow up. It's the end of October. All the leaves fell the night before. And then I had to teach class at 10 in the morning and I'm out there just furiously raking the yard, trying to get all these leaves off so I can run the bagger through. I'm jamming up the bagger because the grass is too wet because it rained and the leaves are on it. And, um, I finally, I mean, I, I broke a nasty sweat. I was out there for at least an hour and a half to get a bag and a half of grass to go in. Um, and I think the students thought I was nuts. But what we did is we used the NIR and you could actually scan. It did Again, it doesn't have to be perfect, but you could scan the grass when you packed it. And then we could use, because a lot of these then um, have different calibrations, right? So, I need to use a calibration for fresh forage when it goes in. And then I used a calibration for haylage when it came out or grass silage really. And so we packed it in. Seven weeks later, we unpacked it and analyzed the change in uh, composition. And you could could see spoilage. Um, I allowed some of them to spray with inoculants. Like, um, I'm trying to remember who the person was. It was a former yeast salesman, kind of gave me the idea and said, well, you know, when we used to do these demos, we would just spray acetic acid in there to show how if You lower the pH really quickly, it changes how much gas loss there is. And so, um, some of them treated with acetic acid, some of them treated with yeast, um, some of them treated and added some additional corn starch to ferment and bring the pH down faster. And so, we had all these bags of fake silage uh, that we unpacked and then analyzed. And it was really, that was really cool. Um, it was a complete disaster in the middle. And I had to put it underneath uh, like a lab hood because the smell was so bad in the lab (laughs) that it was requested to me that we buried it under the hood. But it was a really, really cool experience. And all of the data made sense, right? So like people always ask me, oh, well, how accurate is the NIR? I kind of have to trust the labs that the calibrations are pretty accurate and applicable, right? So if a lab coaches me and says, hey, right now the NIR equation for maybe like amino acids are newer, right? Maybe the NIR equation for amino acids with the handheld is, is a little more variable than NIR for NDF or crude protein. or well, I, I get that. Um, but when I'm teaching students, I just need them to make sense. I need them to be logically ranked. And um, I think the same is true then if you think about harvesting, right? If I go in and do harvest checks as I'm processing forages through and packing them, I'm just trying to check to make sure they're close, right? If I'm bringing feeds into the mill and I want to check my batches, lot numbers as they come through, I just need it to be pretty, pretty close, fairly, fairly repeatable on those batches. Um, I don't, I don't know if it's perfect, but then if you talk to people who specialize in lab chemistry is I know we have the AOAC, but is anything that we really analyze perfect?
2: There's the sampling variation and lab variation, and yeah, the we could. <laughs> it's kind of a different topic, I guess, but.
0: Uh, I, but I'm not chasing perfection, right? I'm right. just I'm just trying to chase a ranking tool to help me make decisions, and I think it, it does a really good job of that. It's so you're going to have a lot of fun. You just need to pull it out and uh, maybe let somebody else drop it.
2: There you go. Yes. <laughs>
0: They'd they fire them, and right. then you can yes. carry on.
2: <laughs> Maybe some poor grad student can do that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Well, I was really excited about the handheld because we can take it anywhere. Like I'm going to take it. We have a I-29 field day coming up, beginning of August. Well, either coming up or in the recent past, depending on when this episode is posted. Um, but we'll be able to take it there, and and people can bring forage samples, and I throw it in the back of my car when I'm doing farm visits and answer some really, a lot of times, you know, like you said, I'm not sitting there most of the time on farm balancing rations or needing to be super precise about about what my nutrients are, right? I kind of need to know like bench ballpark, you know, what what are what are we looking at here? So
0: I'd like to see it incorporated. And since you're on the board, you can do that, right? I'd like to see this incorporated into dairy challenge too. Right, it would be a great thing to step out that day and run some stuff on Dairy Challenge and let kids see real life. You know what what you have on the farm that day. Well,
2: I mean, we do the shaker box already, so
0: right. Well, it is, <laughs> this can tell you a lot more. Right, than shaker exactly. Box. Yeah, <laughs> I just think that would, that would be really cool for them.
2: Yeah, get some recent forage analysis that doesn't get much fresher than while we all are loading off the bus.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I think um, so, My both my um, grandparents were involved in extension. Both my grandfathers were involved in extension um, in different ways. And I think about, I look at pictures from doing extension in the 40s and 50s and like where you could drive on a farm with a cool new tool and show somebody how it worked and explain a new scientific principle. How many times in our career have you had something that you could put in the car and take somewhere and show somebody. It's really fun.
2: Yeah. Time-lapse cameras is the one that we did the most recently. Um, We've done some work in Iowa with, with time-lapse cameras in the past couple of years. And people have been really excited about that. I actually have a box of those sitting right over there as well. I've got, I need to do a better job. I think of organizing my just random pieces of toys, but um, (laughs) yeah, that's been, that's been one that we've gotten a a fair amount of traction on too. Just, with time budgets and that sort of thing, being able to um, see what the cows are doing and when they run out of feed and, and answer some of those questions. And we loan those out though. Like those aren't really demonstrations, right? We just, if somebody calls us up and says, hey, hey, I want some time-lapse footage where we'll drive out to the farm and help them get it set up and that sort of thing. But I think most I think farms that-, that we work with anyway, aren't gonna be going and buying these fancy new toys, right? They're not gonna be buying NIRs or or time-lapse cameras or thermal imaging cameras or whatever else it is, but having somebody in extension who can go and use that without, you know, having us on as like, or us having you on as a client and uh, kind of circumventing a lot of the extra, a lot of the extra stuff. I think thing still has value. Um, but yeah, it's, it's fun when we get fancy new toys to play with and, and show off a little and, extension can still be sexy.
0: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's that's your tagline for this, right?
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Episode title right there, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, sign me up. No, I think, I think my limitation now is just I have one device and I have a lot of people who want to know how it works. And so I think what my next step is, is probably to train a core group of people who know how to use it, who can check it out. And then bring it back you know somebody i can handcuff it to their wrist for the weekend and then they bring it back to me on monday with or without the hand
2: <laughs> uh, you got two of those anyway
0: <laughs> yeah. i think we've got to train some more people people how to use them it's interesting you talk about the farm you know whether or not a farm will buy one so i don't know five or six years ago we were all sitting around having a beer talking about where this goes and i thought well we're gonna get to a point where every single big farm has their own nir and a, a bench top sitting in the back lab room, right beside a you know a casual oven or whatever. Um, but now, I guess I'm not sure with with portable technology and you know Bluetooth capacity straight to your phone. Or you know, I'm kind of an advocate that maybe they can make a wand that will just plug into your phone. That'd be all right too, right? Plug in technology.
2: I have some thermal cameras that plug right into my my phone, so you don't have. Oh
0: yeah, that'd be mm-hmm. that'd be cool. Yeah. I haven't seen one of those.
2: Yeah, I've got. You have an Android, right? I have a couple that, that I can't use because they're an Android Android compatible and I have an iPhone. But yeah, it just plugs into that port on the bottom of your phone and it's a really high quality thermal imaging camera.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. am um, putting that on my Amazon shopping list. Uh-huh. <laughs> so um, no, I think though in my head that farms were going to invest in these and run all their own feed analysis. But there are some key parts that I kind of lost sight of in that. One is the cost of the calibration is still a lot more than a lot more than I thought it was going to be, right? And once you realize what goes into the calibration, you understand why it's still so expensive. The other piece of that is the time, right? So even if all the technology is sitting in that back lab office, who on the farm is going to have the time to go and correctly pull all those samples, bring it in and, and input it. So that's where the nutritionist still has that chance to kind of you know, carve out their niche on the farm, show up with the device, run the device right in the you know the back trunk of their car, Pull all the samples and input it for the person at leave. Uh, but it's it's really it's really exciting.
2: Yeah, time's and still the most valuable
0: resource. Time is still the most valuable resource. Yeah, that's something I'm not very good at keeping track of. Yeah, <laughs>
2: <laughs> join the club. Yeah. So you mentioned you're sending out these hay kits, or you're putting together these hay kits. What exactly do those look like? Are you sending in? You're sending them to counties. You said
0: I have not completed one yet. We're, we're getting there. So we started by building feed kits. So, um, some other folks that work in extension It's one of those, like Benjamin has a bad idea, but Benjamin's not very good at executing bad ideas. He just hands bad ideas off to of somebody else. Cause he has
2: time blindness. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Time blindness. Yeah, that's fair. And so, um, some other folks in, in our, um, in our extension suite had some funding from the Ohio harness association who was willing to put money towards, um, these feed kits. So use that money to purchase a bunch of feeds, brought all the feeds in here, and we had like a feed kit building day. And we built 100 feed kits that each have 48 separate feeds in them, activities to match uh, for, for 4-Hers, you know, like how to use a Pearson Square, how to ID them, sort them in nutrient classes, um, things like that. And then we basically, because of the sponsorship, were able to give one of those for free to every county. Okay. Um, so that's that was a real cool part where where they were able to come in and take what was kind of just a, a bad idea and actually implement it somewhere. So now bad idea 2.0 is hay kits, right? So um, and we have smaller versions of the others that um, we did, like a non-ruminant feed kit, a ruminant feed kit, an equine feed kit, stuff like that. But the hay kits I think will be roughly about the same. Um, I'm trying to do like, think about like the old VHS cassettes. But I kind of want a box where you you have like a slider and you pull out and it's kind of just a I don't know clear four by six or, or six six by ten um, rectangle where the hay has been kind of shoved in there and it's going to be a little bit of art right it's not going to be a real coarse section of a hay bale but you're going to you're going to take hay bales of different types, fold them in there, and then have kind of a reference kit that will have matching data. So then when you want to have that conversation in an extension setting about different types of hay, all of your different species, not all, but your your most important species, varieties of maturity, um, we have all of that there and you can set up different ranking scenarios and you can start talking about selection. Like, why do I choose this hay for this purpose? Because right now, if you ask not to stereotype, but let's say you ask the average horse exhibitor, um, in, in Ohio or some other state, um, how do you choose your hay? Well, I go and buy the greenest one, or I go and buy the most expensive one, or I go and buy the one that's labeled horse hay, right? Those are bad reasons. (laughs) And so, um, if we can teach them how to make more, um, kind of process driven decisions about hay selection, it also helps kind of stabilize value and bring some equity to the hay market. So, you know, people, there's, there's some balance in what am I paying and what am I receiving in return? So we can start then talking about nutrients and we can talk about hay bale weights, but we got to first talk about quality of hay before we can talk about weight of hay. And so we have a lot of variety that I'm sure everybody does and how big, the how big the bales are based on spring tension and also how much they weigh.
2: So you started, I want to cycle, circle back to something you mentioned earlier, which is that you started with the NIR to kind of replace the setting fires in the microwave thing. Um, And and as you were talking, I could hear some of my colleagues saying like, oh, you know, we need to be making sure that we're teaching, uh, teaching the, teaching the basics, right? That they, you know, you have to start and work your way up and um, you know, you're skipping steps, right? If you if you're going straight to the new technology, and they won't actually understand what dry matter means. And um, I, I, so so do you ever you ever get pushed back like that, or or has anybody made those comments to you? And what would you say if uh, if somebody did say some along those
0: lines? I'm not 100 percent sure. Most people know what I'm doing on a daily basis. Okay. <laughs> um, based on That's the number nice. of times. Yeah. I- I started a fire. I skinned a beaver in class in the spring. I mean, Uh, if (laughs) if they did, I think I'd have a letter.
2: (laughs) You know this is being recorded, right?
0: (laughs) I do. It's all right. That was actually a very disappointing moment in class this spring. when we, We fabricated a beaver and then grilled it out in class, and I didn't get anything on my SEIs. Yeah, I thought some, surely somebody <laughs> in the comments would bring that up. Hey, what's What do you got to do to get a comment? Right. Uh, uh, no, I think I I push back on myself about that a good bit. I'm really torn on that because, um, you know, I, I TA'd an undergrad with, with Vanda R. I, I TA'd for Normand. I TA'd for Dr. Pepper. Um. And then I took over teaching and I also go and teach at kind of different levels with the Dairy Consortium in New Mexico and and collaborate with some other other folks. And the thing I always struggle the most about is what are the essential basics that we have to still teach. And the one I struggle the most with is proximate analysis. Because I spend a lot of time trying to get students to understand the proximate analysis uh, diagram, process, purpose. And then at some point in time in the in the semester, I think it comes to realization that they're never going to use that again, and that's really disappointing. When I could be spending two or three days talking about how NIR calibration curves are created, uh, or how we should be going out into the field and taking proper feed samples, um, and so I think sometimes we're so married to the basics that we lose. You know, I would love to have another day to teach about. Lipids. I would love because you know, I only have two days built into the schedule to talk about lipid nutrition. Right. Once I get past the basics of what a fat is, um, another day would be a thirty percent increase on lipid lipid nutrition. Yeah. That'd be a big yeah. And I gotta I gotta start with students who probably don't know the difference. Not all students, but at least half of the class doesn't know the difference at the beginning of the semester between hay and straw. And I have to get somewhere by Thanksgiving. To where they can um, roughly balance a diet based on the nutrient classes, right? At least, I mean, even the percentages aren't right, but they've pulled feedstuffs that match the desired nutrients. And they're trying to match a requirement of a, in my case, we use fake species. So, unicorns, pegasus, whatever.
2: I've done jackalopes before.
0: Oh, that's a a good one. Next. Jackalopes are next. Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so... I think I think that being grounded in the basics is important, but I think we have to ask ourselves which basics still really matter. So, so I guess for me, I would I would probably really struggle to migrate away from talking about the basics of fiber analysis and how we got there. Right? I think it's really important to know how we analyze fiber because how we analyze fiber helps you understand how we define fiber, and because fiber is kind of hard to conceptualize. And we're still own. trying
2: to figure out how to define fiber and the best way to do it. And...
0: Yes, yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, I think it's really important to understand proximate analysis from the standpoint of how we progressed in our understanding of nutrition. It shows you kind of where you started and 150 years later where you got to. Um, I think the basics that we're missing though are so... I've got that uh, feeds and feeding the old feeds and feeding book yeah I got that I found it I found it at an estate auction Morrison yeah yeah I bought it for like 10 bucks and I started reading through there and there's all kinds of little nuggets and books like that about oh well when you see this um, in this feed stuff it actually probably means this other thing or um, you know when you know there's there's little notes in there about uh, like, uh, dry dry matter intake influences or little notes in there, um, maybe not analytical, but about like combinations of feed ingredients. And those are basics, right? That's not a new book. Those are basics that we aren't teaching a lot of times that we've kind of forgotten or lost. And some of that's because I don't know what book at this point I should be using as a course textbook. Um, I don't know about you, but I used the Church and Pond book, which was new when we were in undergrad. Right.
2: I've got... Three, I think, different ones that, uh, that you mix and match from, right? Because I don't know if there's a perfect one out there right
0: now. Um, and, and that's a big shortcoming. So, from the standpoint of teaching in the classroom, I feel like at this point, it falls on me to find material that I think will be most applicable for students while still capturing those core principles of chemical nutrients and you know, how those translate to energy or how those translate to a growth response. And other than that, I kind of feel like it's a free-for-all. So, anytime I can use something, especially in Columbus where we have so many students who don't grow up around animal feeds, uh, livestock production, so they're coming in maybe with a lot of cat and dog background or, you know, small, small animal kennel work or, or equine sometimes if they're lucky. It's really important to to get in front of them as often as possible real examples of what we're talking about and how, how it's going to impact their view of nutrition tomorrow. So, that that's why the NIR was a nice one. That's why the microwave was a nice one. Because if you want to visualize dry matter, drying something live in front of everybody is great. Um, I did it first with an air fryer.
2: I was just going to say.
0: Yeah, that was Tim Hackman's recommendation to me. And um, I legitimately, legitimately caught something on fire. Oh, no. And I actually carried the air fryer outside of the outside of the classroom <laughs> um, because I, I needed to do it in such a time-sensitive amount, of, you know, and, and I actually made the mistake of allowing the students to bring things they wanted to know the dry matter of that day. And, of course, things that are really wet take a long time to dry, and then if you try to speed them up, they're more prone to kind of just burn. So... Um, so now I try to bring in my own feeds. Corn silage is great because it's relatively dry and it works, or at least our corn silage is relatively dry. And then um, don't think about it. And then um, we, we did use the microwave for a good bit of time because the microwave is, I don't know, four or five minutes if you kind of really push it. And, and that makes the student pull it out and weigh it and continue to weigh until that weight no longer changes. Um, I, I guess a coster Tester could probably get done in a class period too.
2: Sometimes, sometimes it takes a while. It smells really good. So that's my favorite part of using a coster Tester in class, but...
0: Not not the feedback I get from our students. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, the mic the microwave though, I think you're always walking this fine line where suddenly if the tool you're using generates more excitement about chaos or disaster or whatever you... You've now taken what was a cool teaching tool and distracted them to something. All they're going to talk about afterwards is, oh, my professor caught something on fire or burnt something in class. They're not going to talk about dry matter. So, at least when they leave after using the wand in class, then they'd say, oh, yeah, well, we use this cool new technology that um, is not really available to every single farmer yet. So, they saw something new and cool, uh, but it wasn't maybe so chaotic.
2: That is kind of, it is a really hard balance to strike a lot of times, you know, like what, because if you think about when animal science departments were founded and, you know, back when we were animal husbandry departments or whatever, versus now we know so much more, right. And we're still trying to fit that much information into a four year degree. And you have the same one semester long nutrition class that they did back in however many decades ago. Um, And I think lipids is a great example. Like we just know so much more now than, than we used to. And, so it's really it can be really hard to kind of find that balance between you really want them the basics have a lot of value um but there's only so many hours and there's only so much time that you can and and kids are pulled in so many directions all of us not just not just students we're all pulled in so many directions now and there's so much um, vying for our attention that it can be it can be hard to sometimes you got to give some stuff up and it can be hard to kind of decide what's your What's going to be the thing that you have to give up? So,
0: And I'm not very good at giving things up. So, that's a that's a struggle for me. So, I just always try to talk faster and shove more in. And that, that response is not very positive either. Yeah, right? they, don't, so, they learn
2: less that way when you start doing that. Yeah.
0: They, they do. Yeah. So, you know, we've really tried to refocus um, on uh, kind of like homework or case studies. Case studies have been really positively received. It's not that they don't care about nutrition in real life settings is that they don't know how to start trying to apply themselves to it. And so, um, I started taking some of those same basic principles, but throwing them into case studies. And so then they, you know, Oh, you have to calculate, for example, like Brody's equation for the amount of energy you need. That's still very important, right? Um, for basal metabolic rate, but we use, uh, like case studies and here's the formula and then let you go in and, and, Try practicing some of those. My favorite is the dinosaur. Um, so, we, right now, we make students um, estimate how far, like a, a stegosaurus, would have to walk to find enough food to consume, to fuel the basal metabolic rate. So, and they have to walk a long way. Um, but it makes students think about uh, forage density and it makes them think about a caloric value for, you know, yay many pounds of forage. The only way they can make it balance is if Stegosaurus is out in an alfalfa field all day.
2: <laughs> which famously were, you know, prevalent in the Triassic or Jurassic period. I forget which one the Stegosaurus were out in, but... <laughs>
0: The other explanation I get from students very frequently is that um the the climate was just so much more favorable that plants grew ten times faster at that time. There you
2: go, yeah, there was new plants by the time Stegosaurus ate the first one, so
0: <laughs> I had a student last year say, well Stegosaurus became a carnivore, and it was a lot easier
2: there you go <laughs> he just he just ate everybody yeah. else <laughs> it's a little it's a little known mutation in the stegosaurus genome, yeah. <laughs>
0: I, yeah I don't I don't know what the right answer is but I kind of feel like um, nutrition courses as a whole have not moved very much
2: while well, our understanding of nutrition definitely has
0: yeah so I think it's our responsibility to expose students to where the future is headed or else they're not going to be very relevant when they graduate anyways
2: We have that discussion a lot in class too about you know, Today I'm going to teach you. It doesn't even have to be a nutrition thing, right? Today I'm going to teach you PC Dart or Dairy Comp or Milk One Milk or whatever whatever program it is. And but we always talk about the important thing is not you learning step by step how to do this program, and me downloading into your brain how to use this software or whatever tool it is. The important thing is that you have learned the process of trying to figure something out. And the only way to learn that process of how to figure something out is to repeatedly be exposed to things that you don't know what you're doing, which can be really hard, um, especially for students of that age, the college students. It can be really hard. And and we deal with a lot of not stereotype, but we deal with a lot of, you know, pre that students, you and I do. Um, and so just the concept of like, I have to not know something to be able to learn something and you're not just gonna tell it to me and and kind of getting comfortable with that discomfort. It's really foreign. And it's something that that I think it's more important than ever for them to practice on because like you said, you know, it's our industry and the and the tools we have available is just evolving so quickly.
0: Well, and more and more it becomes important, like when you and I were in school, it was important to memorize things. Not that the internet didn't exist, but we didn't use the internet a lot, right? But then, even by the time we had kind of graduated, it was getting to the point where it's like, oh well, you can Google that, right? <laughs> and so,
2: it always blows my students when I tell because now, in back to Dairy Challenge, they can use they can use whatever they want. Um, they can use Google, they can they can use whatever resources, and we didn't like we could bring notes. I think um, we could bring class notes. I'm pretty sure, but we couldn't use the internet. And when I tell them we couldn't use the internet, it's just like like Dark Ages, you know. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and I tell them, I said, well, your um, your presentations are so much better than they were when I was a competing student. But you have to remember, we pulled everything out of memory. Uh, we couldn't go and reference every single, we'd have to say, oh, you know, I think I remember seeing that one time, or I heard it in this seminar. And, and like you said, pull it from your book. And um, now they're there to where everything is searchable or findable really fast. You know, PDF reference books and so it becomes less and less important what you can memorize because you could find it tomorrow it becomes more and more important how you can critically think through the problem of applying the knowledge because everybody you know that's why we say dr google right everybody can everybody can find the super specific scientific or medical knowledge that they need to if they know how to use google right um but how do they then apply it it becomes very challenging and so, I think it, it changes what you need to be teaching. That, that's why I think it's less and less important to teach the basics.
2: We sound really old right now. We were not, I don't think we're this old but.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I was cleaning out my basement. Um, Hannah needed some uh, binders. So, I pulled out some old binders and one of my binders was like a, basically a state 4-H but it was a science fair style project. And it was on Mad Cow Disease. Oh from, yeah, from 2000 and I don't know 2003, and that was the hot year, right? And um, and I pulled it out, and I I was kind of like my memory was jogged back when before Google, and you used AOL search engine to find everything, and just how useless the internet was. And even at that time, there was just absolutely stupid stuff that was completely factually inaccurate on the internet. And and it was, but it was harder to find it or harder to promote it through hits to the top of the list. Um, and I just think now, like how much that's changed since when we. I know we're not that old, but since when we started school to to now when we're graduating students, you know, a couple decades later, uh, it's changed very dramatically to where I think our expectations of a course like introductory nutrition based on our experience, it's not a very good fit. We just teach it the way we experience it. That's not a good fit for the skills that students need now.
2: Well, and I really appreciated your comments that you made earlier specific to the NIR. Um, You were talking about, you know, students that come from a dog or cat background, maybe not more of a urban, not so much of a livestock background, and using that NIR as a tool to kind of help them be able to, you know, draw connections to to the livestock industry because they don't have a background in the livestock industry. I think that's just as true for pe- for students who don't come from a livestock background. Um, I used to, before I was at Iowa state, I used to teach at a two year school. And so had a lot of students that came from farms. And um, I was always challenged by those students when I'd talk about things like dry matter, proximate analysis or whatever it is, like how does this actually impact like my day to day on the farm? Because that's what they were there for. And that's what they were going back to. And it was a lot of the same tools, to be honest, or the same concepts, you know, you have to like all of these scientific explanations, you know, being able to draw them back to, and this is why we do things this way. Um, and I think that's make something, something that makes animal science and, and agriculture programs kind of unique is that it is so dependent on experiential learning, um, you know, among the different, the different STEM programs that you have, animal science is so ingrained in what are the experiences that students can have while they're in the program. We do so many students these days. I did an internship one year um, and not everybody did internships. At least I don't feel like internships were quite as common when we were in college, but you know, my students are doing an internship almost every summer and, um, and and I think that's kind of unique to animal science. And that's what makes teaching animal science so much fun is that you get to tie it back into like this is the boots on the ground application to all this kind of nerdy stuff that we're learning about.
0: Yeah. Well, I was just thinking um, while you're talking. So does your new, your new NIR, will you be able to scan manure? Because you'll have that. You told me you have like the little disc cover or whatever. Yeah.
2: I actually... I'm
0: not I think sure. There's, probably. I think there's a manure calibration now. Yeah,
2: probably. Yeah. And I was actually fecal just, just stuff. thinking, yeah,
0: <laughs> I can talk about digestibility in class, right? Like we can we can bring in here's a feed and here's a, a feces, and we can actually talk about disappearance of nutrients using that wand right there on the spot. And I, I just while you're talking, I was thinking, that's a completely new experience. That's another thing that students um, outside of agricultural or inside of agricultural backgrounds, they kind of all all together struggle with is digestibility, right, disappearance of nutrients and um, that'll be really fun. Yeah. It's magic. Yeah, magic, magical disappearance. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, I'll have to look and see if the calibrations, if there's any of them that do like a an INDF or you know, because I need for a lignin, I need some, some sort of internal marker example because um, markers are also a really big, stru- I do still teach traditional marker um, Maybe that's a bad use of my time too. I'm not sure, but I have a really nice slide set on it. So then I did not want to stop using it. Right.
2: You've invested all that time. Yeah. Anything else that we're supposed to talk about or that we should talk about? Any last thoughts? We're at about a little over the 45 minute mark before we move on. I'm still going to ask you three questions. um, Oh, sure. But it's not going to be the same three questions I asked you last time. So.
0: Oh, so am I your am I the first repeat for you?
2: You're my first repeat. I don't know if any of the other hosts have had repeats. Um, but you're my first repeat, so and I didn't actually clear this protocol with anybody. So
0: <laughs> <laughs> I um I didn't have anything I had made like a short list and I was just going through and checking, but I don't I don't think so. I think we kinda kinda hit it all. It's time
1: for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. SMAX Tech. Get insights from inside your cows with SMAX Tech for higher herd health and profitability. R-Yeast 40. Ruminal and intestinal double modulation by ICC Animal Nutrition. Ivonic Animal Nutrition. We are sciencing the global food challenge. DSM Firmanish. Mycotoxins can threaten cattle performance. DSM Furmanish offers a portfolio of solutions to help mitigate the impact of mycotoxins in your feed. X-Zealot, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Ivonic <laughs> Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Evonix focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers.
2: Well, I have three questions for you. They are loosely based on the three questions we ask all of our guests, um, but because you've already answered those questions, I'm going to mix it up on you a little bit. So the first question is, normally, what is your favorite dairy-related book or resource? Um, but I'm going to ask you, what's your favorite paper that you've read recently?
0: Oh, that's challenging. And I'm going to confess that I have not been reading as many papers as I should. So how about we say the my most favorite paper I've started reading, but don't have the... There you don't have go. It. <laughs>
2: or we could say your favorite classic paper.
0: I don't know. I've, I've been reading a lot. So, I, I've really been delving into, I know I should already know this, right, because I, I live and work at Ohio State, but, um, Firkins's branch chain VFA work and really trying to understand the, um, now that there's three, four, five of those papers kind of stacked up, really trying to understand, um, how that, that branch chain VFA product is working or could be working in microbial populations. Um, we, if you want to hear kind of a, a sideways story, we did a little work on music, uh, like the parlor music oh, and yeah. what kind of, yep. and parlor music appears to influence, like, I don't know if it's cow's happiness, but maybe um, cow's productivity. But I have a running theory that maybe it's not the cow's, maybe it has a lot to do with it puts uh, the uh, like a dash. Like a moon. Yeah. It, I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Um, and so, I was reading a bunch of papers about, about that basically, like the effect of music on um, kind of comfort level um, in, in a lot of different species. <laughs> um, fish is actually one I didn't think anybody had been doing research in, but like uh, apparently fish grow faster with different kinds of music. So, that's, that's a little teaser for you. Um, but the most favorite paper recently I, I'm not all the way through it because sometimes it takes me a little bit of time to digest. But you know, back to fiber and the way that fiber can be really kind of difficult, tricky to analyze. And I got really hung up there for a few years on different pore sizes, ash content. I was doing some undergrad studies and comparing you know, like the ANCOM bags versus reflux units. And how do we run fiber more efficiently in the lab? And then um, I saw Mary Beth Hall at ADSA and she had that poster. And then she said, oh, well, the paper is already in press. And I think it just came out this month's JDS. So that would be the August issue. Um, and so I've been working my way through that that paper actually. And I really appreciate every so often you got to read a methods paper, right? They're not glamorous. They're really dirty and there's tons of data. and And it's really frustrating, I think, to kind of work your way through the paper. It's not a reflection on the authors, but I really appreciate how much time and thought goes into a methods paper. And it's a methods paper that's going to influence the things that we do in the lab. And honestly, what we've started doing for wet chemistry NDF is it's sending it out. So because over time, if you have new students running it every time you might be, you might be better sending it to a commercial lab. And I think, you know, just to capture on a, a side point with that, but like I don't think people who think that these these NIR wands are going to replace wet chemistry, I don't think that that's necessarily really ever going to happen. Uh, well, maybe maybe eventually, but you know, if there's going to still be some times you're going to want to send off for wet chemistry. But I think you can be a lot more targeted about when you use it, why you use it, because there's a time delay and there's a time expense for that, right? Um, So, the NIR kind of helps you manage, like you said, time is your most valuable asset. And then wet chemistry gives you more analytical precision, right? And so, sometimes you need – that's probably my paper for right now. I don't have the citation. I don't know what it is.
2: (laughs) Well, and so, it's uh, end of July right now. Uh, Mary Beth Hall's recent paper that just came out in press. So, I don't know when this will be posted, but – Anybody who goes and searches for work Mary Beth Hall has done is probably not gonna be disappointed. So That's fair. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Our second question is normally what is your favorite non-dairy or non-agriculture book or resource? I'm gonna ask you, what is the favorite what is your favorite thing that you've read recently?
0: And I've been kinda all over the place. I read, I think since the last time we talked, I read Where the Crawdads sings.
2: You were in the middle of it last time we talked.
0: And I'm gonna say that it's overrated. I, I'm sorry, I'm kind of, I agree to, with you,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to Amanda when she listens to this. <laughs> um, I, it was good, but it wasn't the descriptive. Like, it really paints a, a just amazing picture, the descriptive words. Um, but then she recommended as a follow-up book to me, and I'm in the process. I haven't finished it, but it's uh, called Solito.
2: Oh, I don't know that one.
0: And it is a, uh, a young man's story um, basically trying to – immigrate from I think Guatemala or Nicaragua to the United States like and so I'm currently in, this, in the midst of prepping for state fair but I have an unfinished book at home where he's trying to um, traverse you know through some back alley deals across Mexico to get in and um, I just think that that's it's it's a, really, it's a really powerful chapter by chapter that kind of keeps you caught and really paints a very different life from I think what a lot of us have experienced And I like books that kind of challenge the way that you look at the world, um, make you think about other people's experiences. Uh, So that's Solito. And I don't know. It's a more or less an autobiography. The the guy who it's about wrote it. So I don't um, I don't know who the author is.
2: So the last one I'm going to ask you is usually what sets successful dairy producers. And I always struggle to say it. What sets successful dairy professionals apart from those who are not? Um, So... Today, I'm going to ask you, who is someone in the dairy industry that you look up to and why?
0: Uh, well, I mean, I've got a few. We just were sitting there at the, you know, the Bill Weiss Symposium. And obviously, that's a pretty strong uh, role model. I think from an extension standpoint, um, him and Norman are kind of my aspirational models. Maybe not some of the research stuff or, you know, some of the, the teaching pieces. But um, when you get out in an extension, you um, applications, the ability of those two, usually in a pair, to take a problem today, turn it into a research question, develop a very specific project, and then bring it back to the extension audience. It is, is really an inspiring, I think, that kind of keeps me grounded in, okay, what's the next thing we're going to look at? Because so many times you get curious about things that probably don't matter. Or you go down your rabbit hole and um, so many researchers today struggle to find that relevance back to, we say, oh, well, we're industry relevant. Well, if you're only relevant to the technical services people at the kind of up here who are talking in very, you know, specific um, jargon with you, that's not the same as kind of that extension relevance, right? And um, so, those, those two are kind of... Top top of my list.
2: Excellent choices. Thank you, uh, Benjamin, for joining us this afternoon or this morning or whenever else people are listening to this episode. Uh, really appreciated your insight today.